This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. Episode 9, Canadian Dramaturgy, Disability Theatre, and David Friedman's Creeps. This week I will examine another early entry into the Canadian theatre canon that is historically interesting for both theatrical and socio-identity reasons, David Friedman's Creeps. Like Rita's Ecstasy of Rita Joe and Herbert's Fortune in Men's Eyes, the play's place in the Canadian theatre and drama canon came almost immediately. And like Rita Joe and Fortune, Creeps is sometimes hard to look at from our current place and time. But it's worth a look. This episode will include a conversation I had with Dr. Lisa Aikman, a Canadian theatre and drama scholar whose work examines the development of Canadian dramaturgy. She's also a dramaturg. Recently, she has also applied her knowledge of dramaturgy and new play development to disability theatre, so I really couldn't ask for a better candidate to talk us through Creeps, which is part of the early new play development process in the Toronto alternative theatre scene in the 1970s, and also written by David Friedman, a man with cerebral palsy, about his experience of working in a sheltered workshop. Before I get to my chat with Lisa, here's some context about David Friedman, Creeps, and sheltered workshops. David Friedman was born in Toronto in 1945, and he died in 2012. He had cerebral palsy. He was encouraged to write short stories when he attended the Sunnyview School for the Handicapped, and he continued writing when he was sent to work in a sheltered workshop at the age of 17. The stories he wrote about his experiences would become the blueprint for creeps. Friedman wrote on a typewriter using a mouth stylus. An article he wrote called The World of Kant about navigating Canadian society as a person with CP was commissioned by the CBC for an adaptation for television. The adaptation was rejected for being too disturbing. Bill Glasgow, founder of Tarragon Theatre, suggested that Freeman take the TV piece and make a play. This play became Creeps. The Factory Theatre Lab and then Tarragon Theatre helped develop the work and it played at both houses. It was published in Richard Plant's Modern Canadian Drama Anthology in 1984. This is the synopsis of the play from Canadian Theatre Encyclopedia. Quote, Four disabled men work in a sheltered workshop doing mundane work. They escape to the washroom, the setting for the play, wherever they need some privacy from the female supervisor. Here they share their feelings and vent their hatred for their institutionalized environment and for charities which support it and to smoke and gossip. Outside, a woman patient screams, begging for a priest. The dialogue is occasionally interrupted by a telethon slash circus brought courtesy of the Shriners, one of the organizations the four men despise, to help these poor blunders of God, end quote. Creeps was produced across Canada and internationally in the 70s and 80s, critically acclaimed as a necessary examination of the lives and treatment of people with disabilities. It is important to note that the actors in these productions would not have been disabled. Part of Freeman's instructions for casting was making sure the actors could accurately imitate the mannerisms, tics, and voices of his characters. This is hard to reckon with now, But much like Chief Dan George being the only Indigenous performer in Rita Joe points to a lack of Indigenous professional actors, that Normate actors would play those with disabilities points to the lack of actors with disabilities at the time. 
Freeman, Glasgow, and Factory's decision was not made as a conscious suppression or erasure, but as a practicality. The story, the perspective, the ideas were important to get on stage, and to get them on stage professionally, this was how it was needed to be done. In 2016, Real Wheels Theatre Company in Vancouver mounted a production of Creeps. One of the actors, Adam Grant Warren, who played Jim, has CP. He wrote an essay in which he states, quote, In the 45-year history of the play, this production was billed as the first to feature a fully integrated cast of professional actors with and without disability. For me, that was equally parts exciting, surprising, and disappointing, end quote. I've put a link to Warren's essay on his experience with this play in the podcast notes. It's worth a read. Okay, so now we know about Freeman and Creeps. What about sheltered workshops? Well, sheltered workshops were established in the mid-20th century as places where adults with disabilities, for example, cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, would work during the day, doing small, repetitive tasks, usually in manufacturing. The workshops are presented in Creeps as inf infantilizing, demeaning, and boring. In Ontario in 2018, the workshop programs, which are primarily run by nonprofits, were subject to review and were ordered closed as of January 1st, 2019. Good. Yes? Well, this is a theater podcast, so I will not devote too much time about this debate, but just know that the headlines and articles about this decision ran the gamut. Examples included devaluing Ontarians with intellectual disabilities, families plead with government to keep shelters workshops open, and Ontario closes workshops forever. What next? Because our world is messy and does not exist in a binary of black and white, maybe the closures weren't a perfect solution? What I do know for sure is David Freeman's experience in sheltered workshops in the 1960s gave him the experience and material to write creeps an important, messy, bold, offensive, difficult, wonderful entry into the canon. And now let's hear from Lisa Aikman. As with most of the plays I've discussed on the pod, this one is full of offensive language. Some is historically accurate, but offensive now. Some of it is murky, and some of it has always been offensive. As ever, listener discretion is advised. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to Dr. Welcome to Dr. Canadiana. I'm so glad that you are here. Thanks so much for having me, Ashley. Excellent. I um, have asked you to come because you uh, talk about dramaturgy and spe specifically Canadian dramaturgy and what the differences and nuances there. And as an added bonus episode, uh, you have done a lot of work on disability studies and we are talking about creeps this week. So we'll get into that. So I think my very first question for you is, what the heck is dramaturgy? <laughs> you know, I get that question a lot. And there's no easy answer because dramaturgy can be a couple of different things. Um, so the way I like to explain it is there's dramaturgy as a verb and there's dramaturgy as a noun. So dramaturgy as a noun often refers to the structures and conventions of a play, sort of the scaffolding that the play is, is all hanging on. We can get into this a bit later if you want, but I think like the play that you were reading this week, Creek, uh, follows the, what we might call a dramaturgy of poetic naturalism. So that okay. is the form of this play. Um, and that's what we mean when we talk about dramaturgy 
as a noun. Dramaturgy as a verb, the act of dramaturgy, sometimes done by a dramaturge, sometimes done by an artistic director or literary manager, unfortunately also subdivides, so it's still a, a tricky concept, but it can be about aiding in the creation of a play, being a coach, mentor, sounding board for a playwright, uh, being an outside eye on a play, someone with a bit of distance, who's not going to be on stage or directing the play, coming in and commenting and being kind of an in-house critic and aiding in that play development. So that would be what we call developmental dramaturgy. Okay. And then there's production dramaturgy, um, is when the play is already written, Maybe you're handed a Tennessee Williams play that the artistic director wants to put on. The director has a specific vision saying it's cat on a hot tin roof, but it's 1997. And you as the production dramaturg are going to be doing some background research, looking at previous productions of cat on a hot tin roof, doing some research uh, into the, its original time and setting, and then likely doing some research into the new setting that the director is imagining to provide background information to the director, to the actors, to the designers, so that you can comment on artistic decisions they make as they try and make this play, say something a little different, be placed somewhere a little different. Uh, you're the sort of in-house academic in that sense. And that can also involve designing the uh, lobby environment, often writing something for the program to help audiences get the ideas that they need in the back of their minds before they engage with this play. Okay, so I come to you and I say, um, I think it's really important that we restage the ecstasy of Rita Joe, but obviously it's not 1967. And I would like that to, I would like our production to reflect all of the work that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and the report last summer on the missing and murdered. And you would be like, excellent. And maybe we would make like an information package for the actors or and that sort of thing. So you would look at the productions you would look at now and you would be like, this is how we would do it here and now. Mm -hmm. So it's like the why here, why now? Exactly. And the, the dramaturg, uh, I, I like the way Judith Rudikoff describes them as a ghost in the room. They're a presence, you can sense them, but they're rarely going to be a solid thing on stage. Right. And I just say that because the dramaturg probably isn't going to be saying, this is how we should do it. Um, ever in the process, but they are going to be the one to say, oh, well, actually that, that choice has been done by these three companies. I can read the reviews. I can let you know. Um, but yes, as you're saying, if you were to restage Ecstasy of Rita Joe, the dramaturg will likely go and do a bit of research into residential schools and condense that research for the actors in a consumable manner, um, as well as research into the centennial celebration and why this play was created to give actors context without overwhelming them with information. And then again, as you say, do some more like contemporary research into the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and potentially um, notes around the language in the yeah. play or any allusions characters make. So like if you're the dramaturg on a Shakespeare production where they reference the Roman gods a lot, you're probably gonna look up what each of those gods is and what right. their deal is so actors know what they're saying without having to go home and do like scads of homework every time right so if you were being the dramaturg for an oscar wilde play you might explain to everybody what the heck a reticule is yes exactly excellent okay so then i know that there's a particular kind of dramaturgy that is considered canadian um and so 
what is a Canadian dramaturgy then? What does that look like? Sure. So of those two categories I was just talking about, developmental and production, Canadian dramaturgy has been largely developmental right. from its inception. Um, very rarely is a Canadian dramaturge mostly doing production dramaturgy. It's just not um, what our training is for uh, in dramaturgy programs in Canada. It's just also not what we've been called on to do. Canadian dramaturgy is largely about working with playwrights to develop new work. And sometimes that means working with a theater and running their new creators unit or working with their playwright in residence. Uh, but it can also mean working, uh, developing working relationships with individual playwrights and staying with those playwrights across multiple works. Um, I like the way it's described, I frankly forget who described it this way, but saying that one of the dramaturg's most important jobs is knowing when something is ready to be read aloud. So right. There might be a stage reading at the theater company, at which point you're going to get actor feedback, you might even get audience feedback. A lot of the developmental dramaturg's work comes before that moment. Getting the kernel of a play idea to the point that it's ready to be read aloud because getting eight actors feedback on your work right away can really crush an idea. Whereas right. a one-on-one -on -one relationship where you're asking, asking more questions than offering suggestions, that to me is the, is the Canadian dramaturgy that I'm familiar with. Excellent. Okay. So that's a good idea. So the, the, you're doing the developmental, you're helping a play, come into fruition and you might do some of that other research, but that's not like your primary goal. Can you um, talk at all about uh, any examples? You mentioned theater companies, so like Factory and Passmore, they have these relationships. Sure, well, um, just because this was the, the dramaturg I, I learned from, Judith Rudikoff uh, is a professor at York University so she's not doesn't have a relationship with a theater, but she is someone with a one on one, -on -one relationships with playwrights. As far as dramaturgs working at theaters, they're often called literary managers. Okay. And those two jobs can coincide a lot. So a literary manager is someone who's going to be uh, reading the slush pile, reading unsolicited submissions, and um, deciding which works they're going to reach out to playwrights about. Say, oh, there's something here, let's work on this. Um, as well as which works they're going to pass right on to the artistic director and be like, yes, this is really close, we should produce this. And so I think probably the most famous Canadian literary manager slash dramaturg would be Urjo Correda. So he yeah. is- Tarragon, Tarragon, Tarragon. Yes, he's famous for being the artistic director of Tarragon for almost 20 years. And it was really his influence that made Tarragon, what we now call like a playwrights theater. Right. Tarragon has a young creators unit as well as a creators unit. Um, they have playwrights in residence. So the idea is a big portion of Tarragon's commitment, both time-wise and finance-wise, is bringing in emerging talent and getting them to work together in these workshops that were all guided by this central figure who again for 20 years was Urjo Correa. Right, so that gives like a consistency and you could probably look up and see Trace kind of a house style almost, I guess. You definitely could. It's, yeah. um, it's really clear if you read through, so it's a big book, so I'm not recommending that you read through, but it's also great to flip through because it's an archival document. Um, Jess Riley's book, A Man of Letters, where she's gone through 
Urjo Kareda's written correspondence with hundreds of playwrights. Um, he was famous for responding to every submitted play, and that's just not something that is common. It takes a lot of time, but he would respond with a written letter about the strengths and weaknesses of your play, and whether or not it was suitable to Tarragon, where you might take it if it wasn't suitable to Tarragon. Um, and reading through those letters, you can really trace his personal tastes right. um, and how those have actually influenced what we think of as capital C, capital T Canadian theater. His priorities are really clear in what he thinks his audience wants and potentially it was based on what his audience feedback was at the time, but he would often talk to playwrights urging them to get more you know, three-dimensional, psychologically realistic characters at the center of their play. So that is already a certain kind of play. Um, and the plays that really succeeded with him, that really grabbed his attention, were these poetic naturalist plays. So if we were to look at um, any of David French's work, and indeed a lot of work that's still being produced at Tarragon, a very realistic play for the most part, with some sort of expressive moments, expressive elements. So in your case study for this week, Creeps has those moments where the carnival barker comes in or Miss Cerebral Palsy comes in and the audience just accepts this as something not quite real that's happening and that would be poetic naturalism. And it's just fascinating to look at how one man and his tastes, his admittedly educated, refined tastes, he was a theater critic for the Toronto Star for ages, like he knew what he was talking about, but there is still this subjectivity and how that subjectivity of, okay, add this element, or this isn't quite a tarragon fit because it's so abstract or because it's so crass. Like, I don't think Creeps would have gone on at tarragon because Urjo Kareda didn't care for overly explicit talk. He said, you know, his audiences aren't going to respond if there's more than 10 F-bombs or something like that. Right. So when we come back, language and disability. We have a new sponsor this week, Maplebox. That's M-P-L-B-X, body care products with a sweet twist. Once a month, you'll receive a box of relaxing body products made with real maple syrup. Dr. Aikman, tell us about one of this month's items. Maple butter, but it's body butter. Please don't eat the maple butter. Every box will also include a pancake-scented candle. Maplebox, sugar shack and relax. Promo code dramaturgy. Speaking of explicit language and creeps, and one of the things that we've been, my, um, I've been threading through my conversations with people is the language and how it's uh, sometimes difficult to read these plays because the language is offensive and crass is the word we were using. And and shockingly out of date. And one of the things that Cameron Crookston talked about when he was on the podcast was the evolution of some of these slurs and how some of the language that we think of as slurs now was actually just the word. We, we use transvestite as an example there. And then some, and then we also made sure to point out when something was just straight up racist and we used the word Chinaman, never appropriate not reclaiming that, shut it down. Um, and then the same thing happened with the ecstasy of Rita Joe. And I had a, we had conversations about um, the use of the word Indian 
and how Indian was both pejorative, but also just the descriptive noun for a certain group of people when the play came out. And I think that that is a good way for us to segue into talking about creeps because that language is happening in creeps too. Um, so is there any, I know we talked about spastic, so is there anything that you can say about that? Well, what's really interesting about creeps is if you were to read it in a vacuum, like just do a close reading of the play, it's really difficult to extrapolate what is and isn't acceptable language at the time. Right. Because these characters are all sort of constantly mocking one another for many things, including their disabilities. And they're also using really pejorative language about other communities. Yeah. Like they use the N-word. And that was not okay in the 70s. That word was never okay. No one was ever like, this is a fine term. We should all use the N-word. That's not... No. <laughs> that is not a historically specific thing. So when that crops up, it, it does cast into suspicion. Like, was, was spastic a slur at the time? Was, was crip a slur at the time? Um, but I think we can decide from the fact that, you know, the Rotary Club spastic club. Um, that actually wasn't a slur at the time, nor was uh, the term retard. What we can't determine just from reading the play was how these characters might have felt about being called those words. Mm -hmm. It can always be hurtful to be reduced to a single identity. Yes. You know, woman isn't a slur, but if I was in a faculty meeting and someone just repeatedly referred to me as the woman, I don't know that I'd feel good about that. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something infantilizing about joining something called lady club. Yes. Um, so I think, I think a term can both be acceptable in its time and still be uncomfortable depending on who's using it. So I think it's important to track who's using what language in this right. play. Yeah. Because I think that that's, that's true to this day. A lot of Books published by uh, disability artists, disability scholars, take a lot of time to define why they're choosing certain terms, or they very self-consciously say, I'm not going to define the terms, because within individual groups, within different geographic regions, some terms are like embraced and accepted, and others are considered offensive, and it really is becoming very individualized in the disability community to be like, okay, is this a space where uh, people prefer person first language? So person with vision loss. So there's also this idea of capital D disability as connoting um, a culture, a performative identity. Oh, like capital D deaf, small d deaf. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So um, the deaf community has in some spaces, I can't speak monolithically about multiple deaf communities, but the idea of small d, deaf with a small d, referring to the physical condition of being deaf, whereas deaf with a big d is the referring to the community of people who have embraced deafness as a central part of their identity. And the same is true of disability as a term. Okay, okay great. That's good. Because I think that pulling those apart, I had a question um, from some students last week. Uh, talking about the difficulty of, one of my suggestions is always reading the play out loud and the difficulty with our 2020 knowledge and um, sense of 
what is acceptable and not reading these plays out loud to each other and whether whether or not that was okay and i think that 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 is one a really good question and two kind of becoming more and more relevant as language updates and as language becomes more out of date and i mean i think that probably i think back about the language that i used for things and people when i was a kid in the 80s and I was not using anything that would be useful now. I used the word Indian and I said retarded. And I didn't say them pejoratively. Those were the words that were used. And I would not use them now. And I think a lot of that also has to do with who's in the space, right? right. Because, you know, full disclosure, um, I do not identify as a disabled person. I have a chronic illness, but not part of the disability community. Um, so when I started doing some research around this when it became important to learn a bit more for my doctoral research, I, I said some of the wrong things. And it was really important to have scholars that I could reference and read and also just colleagues who could gently take me aside and be like, hey, I know your intentions are good. Some people will find that offensive. Here's why. Here's like some considerations you should make when you're using these terms calling in yeah yeah being called in instead of called out yeah someone recognized that i wasn't trying to do harm but letting me know i might before i you know completely put my foot in my mouth and made someone uncomfortable in a way that i didn't want to yes i think that that's um yeah that's so that's one of the things that i think is interesting and threading through what I'm calling like the original, now I'm thinking of them as the original three kind of Canadian canonical plays, The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, The Fortune in Men's Eyes, both released in 1967 first productions, and then Creeps is that they are uniquely Canadian for a lot of reasons um, that I've discussed in the podcast, but they're also incredibly good examples of communities that were not getting represented suddenly getting like crazily represented which is why they're important to study but also now 50 years later the representation is a bit wrong Mm. so um i wanted to talk to you about how creeps fits into the canon of disability theater now if i i spent a lot of time talking about canons and the canon and what's canonical and what's not and i would assume that whether people like it or not creeps is canon in the way that ecstasy of rita joe is canon in that sometimes it's valuable it's valuable because it started a conversation but now it becomes a problem because it's a bit of a problem well i think creeps definitely holds a space in a disability canon again right. multiple things there are multiple i mean canons yeah. it's canons a, are a, hard to nail down and problematic but yes freeman's creeps gets referenced a lot in the literature and i think it holds a really pivotal space um, that was made possible by this early canadian theater push to develop national drama and to to take risks on new writers to put messier, more provocative, sometimes even angrier things on stage to say, all right, we're not writing. Angrier Angrier is a good way to describe these three plays. Mm -hmm. Like we're putting, this is a, a, a broad umbrella statement that I cannot back up with research. But if at the time Canada wants to see themselves as this 
scrappy little nobody going up against Britain and you're trying to define a Canadian aesthetic when your two most dominant forces are, are Britain and America, then putting on the stories of marginalized people is going to play right into that. Yeah, yeah. But returning to um, Freeman's place in, in sort of what we could call a canon of disability theater, I think what was really important about Creeps is that it was by someone who had this autobiographical experience of the sheltered workplace he was talking about. Yeah. Someone who knew in his bones what it was to be treated this way, to work in this environment. Um, and up until that point, a lot of disability on stage was allegory. So you see Laura in Tennessee Williams. I have lost the name of the clip. Glass Menagerie. Yeah. So the Glass Menagerie is an example that comes up in a lot of the literature of disability used as metaphor. Weak. She needs protection. Uh, she's not ready for the outside world. And this is all kind of manifested in her pleurosis. Right. Um, the same could be said of like Tiny Tim, like disability when it appears in literature, when it appears on stage, is very often a metaphor for some kind of otherness. And that otherness is either you are a victim of something, and this is a physical manifestation of your victimhood, or you are a transcendent, too innocent for this world, and here I'm thinking of Tiny Tim, um, true hero. And this is something that uh, is sometimes called like inspiration porn. Right. Like the, the person that overcame so much because their heart was so good and pure. And what- It shows that your aunt forwards you on Facebook. Yes. And if, if this man can achieve this physical feat with this uh, mobility impairment, what, what can I do? I don't have that holding me back. Like this is inspiration yep. porn. So what Freeman does here in writing about his own personal experience is he gives us very little opportunity to feel like these men are heroes. Right. It's just very little opportunity to empathize. I mean, we can feel for these men. We can identify with them in some way. The idea of feeling trapped by your own self-imposed limitations or by someone else's low expectations of you, but they're crass and they're pissing and they're making jokes about a potential sexual assault yeah. and they're not they're not inspiring. They're they are dicks. Yeah. I don't know that I want to be friends with these guys. And I think that might be a very, might have been a very intentional choice yeah. on Freeman's part. Like this is not an allegory. Nothing about this is allegorical. These are real people and real people are flawed. And I, I, I like the, the repetition of the term pity shit. I think it's very evocative in this play mm -hmm. because it can be hard to try to support a community without supporting the people in it. Yeah. And I think that's what they're getting at with these Shriners things, this, this what they call pity shit of, you know, you, you have to pity and do good for um, the people in this workshop, but that is hard if the people in the workshop aren't likable. So it's really challenging for an audience to be like, okay, I want to, feel bad for these characters because that's a comfortable way of interacting with an unknown quantity with a stranger with an other is to feel bad for them and thus to be 
charitable. And the play really rejects that, not only by making fun of the Shriners and problematizing the idea of like being wheeled out as spectacle, but it also makes it hard for you to feel bad for these characters because they, they are kind of dicks. Yeah. And that's really interesting. It is really interesting. That's um, the idea of charity and um, how that operates was something that I was was brought up in my uh, a discussion I had with students about Rita Joe and Mr. Homer, who's the guy that does the good works, the good works, the good works until it kind of all goes to hell. And then he turns on them and calls them exactly what he, they know he thinks they are. And that idea of like, why, why would, why do people do charity? And there are lots of reasons, but one of the darker reasons is because you, it, you have, you want to feel good that you're doing something for these poor, poor other people. And you, you, it comes across as kind of pity shit. It, that's, yeah, you're right. That's a really good word. Excellent. And then the related thing, cause you have that in Carson in this play too, right? He's, you see him get pushed quite quickly to the moment of, well, now yeah. he's going to make fun of you all. Yeah. Um, and grab your wheelchair without asking, which is not okay. But I think relatedly, we're asked when we watch a play like this, why am I in the audience? What did I, what did I want to get out of seeing a show about four people yes. with cerebral palsy? Was I hoping to sympathize or empathize and then walk away feeling good about myself because of that? Because that's hard to do when the characters are kind of intentionally a little unlikable. Right. Um, or am I saying, or am I going in something akin to a freak show, which they do like play out in these yeah, the more poetic naturalist moments. Like they, they call out the idea of, are you just coming for the, the spectacle of seeing something so unlike yourself? Yeah. And that's something that um, disability theater would go on to reckon with um, in the decades following Creeps. I think a big concern or a central theme of a lot of disability performance was the act of spectating, was looking and looking back and really interacting with the audience and making the audience uncomfortable with mm -hmm. their act of looking. Um, and another theme that, again, I think really well exemplified in Creeps is autobiography. Autobiography is a, a constant thread under a lot of disability performance, and it can be very empowering in the act of telling your own story and thus determining how your story is framed and told. Well, on the other hand, it, there's a real tension because um, it can lead to the belief that theater by disabled people is always about disability or that the disabled body is only ever about itself. A lady wrote this play. It must be a play about ladies. This must be a feminist play because it is a feminist author. This must exactly. be a play about disability because this person is disabled. This must be a play about... Um, black Canadians as a monolith because the woman who wrote it is black. Yes, this is exactly a thread that runs through these identity things. White men can write about anything. Everybody else stay in your lane. Um, and you know, get directed to the play, the, the play, the theater that explicitly has your identity in their mandate. That can be ghettoizing. Yeah, yes. It can be ghettoizing. That is one of the downfalls of the mandate, which we also took up. I was wondering if you could, um, knowing that people who are listening haven't seen any of the more current examples of uh, disability theater that you have, if you could talk about anything that is 
anything that is done a little bit differently now, I know you've written a lot about Judith um, Thompson's work with rare theater and how it's different, the same, problematizing, doing something. Well, I think a big difference is that um, it is rare and when it happens, it is widely frowned upon and just dragged on Twitter. If a character with a disability is played by an actor that doesn't have a disability, that is a, a huge difference between um, 1970s theater. Right. And oh, now. we should make this clear to the listeners. The people who were in, although Creeps was written by a man with uh, cerebral palsy and with a disability, there were, it wasn't until very recently that productions of Creep were done with people who actually had a disability. And in fact, it was, um, David Friedman wrote about how it was really important for the actors who were cast to be really good at imitating these specific qualities. Um, and that would be something that would be like horrifying and inappropriate now, but at the time was seen, again, yeah. representation. There was probably weren't enough actors to fill those roles. And in order for the play to get produced, you had to have somebody pretending to be, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's not that far in our past, right? There's plenty of Hollywood movies about inspirational, quote unquote, figures with disabilities that are played by major Hollywood actors, really showing us how good at acting they are. Um, and yeah, I think David Freeman's intro is super important and showing just how, how important it was to him that the, the conditions and the movements on stage were never caricature. I think that might be why he's saying that only actors that have gone and actually observed mm -hmm. people that move this way can do this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the biggest, I'd say most obvious difference between disability theater and performance now and then. Um, and Creeps kind of paved the way or was part of many plays that paved the way for that because you're not going to train as an actor if you don't think there are parts for you. You're not going to get interested in theater if you don't see yourself or someone who shares an identity category with you or a hope or an aspiration or something with you on stage. So I don't, as you were saying, I don't think it would have been possible to cast that play in 1970 and have it professionally funded. Right. Um, that doesn't mean all disability theater now is done with professional actors. Mm -hmm. um, some of it is what we would call theater of the real. This might be what we would classify, say, Judith Thompson's work as, in that not everyone in her cast, um, she works with an ensemble of actors, all of whom have Down syndrome. Not everyone in that ensemble would classify themselves as a professional actor. Right. For some, this is the only thing they're going to act in, was they wanted to develop this work about themselves, about what it's like, to navigate the world as a young adult with Down syndrome. And beyond this ensemble, they, they might not go out and pursue acting. So that's another thing we see a bit more in disability theater these days is getting um, non-actor performers on stage, collaborating with professional theater makers um, and to create something new that is informed deeply by lived experience, but that also has a guiding hand um, from someone who has just been in the theater longer. Is there anything else you'd like to add about disability theater? Sure, just back to the earlier point about um, the disabled performance always being about disability. I do want to add the caveat that this 
is not always the case. There are definitely companies that are heavily resisting that, that are pushing against that. Um, in Canada specifically, we can see the work of um, Niall McNeil, who works in collaboration with the man whose name I have forgotten now. Um, but he, he works with a collaborator and he writes plays. Um, the most recent one was called Peter's Panties. It's also written a, a play about King Arthur. And these plays have ca mixed ability casts. Right. So some of the actors have disabilities, some don't. But it is the tale of King Arthur's court. It's not it's about... It's like Sir Gawain has crutches. That exactly. is not the point here. The point is King Arthur's Got it. Exactly. And that's happening internationally. There are lots of interesting companies, mixed ability companies or companies um, that are largely uh, folks with disabilities creating really innovative work um, that isn't necessarily about disability, but that has this aesthetic in the background because it's about welcoming different ways of doing things. And it, it creates a really interesting work. So I think that that's a fun and interesting thing to keep in contrast with creeps which right. is so traditional in so many ways, especially traditional to Canadian theater, this right. poetic naturalism, this very familiar play structure. Mm -hmm. um, so its innovation was the subject matter. Right, right. That is a good, yeah, that's a good way to end it. Thanks. Thank you, this was, uh, this was fun. Next week on Dr. Canadiana, I'll be talking about history and performance in Canada. This topic can include plays about historical events like 1837, A Farmer's Revolt, The Trial of Louis Riel, or Consecrated Ground. It could also mean the way history is performed in our national parks, historical houses, and other museums. This topic has been the subject of most of my research for the last seven years, so I have a lot to say. So until next time, eh? Resources consulted for this episode include Canadian Theatre Encyclopedia pages on David Friedman and Creeps, Real Wheels Theatre Company website, Jerry Wasserman's introduction to Creeps in his anthology, 15 Modern Canadian Plays, and the Ontario Association for People with Disabilities website.